Hi, it's Chelsea, hopping on again to remind our listeners that Quiet Connection is on Patreon. We could really use your support to help us continue creating content and spreading awareness around postpartum mental health. Some things you can expect from our Patreon account are ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and goodies in the mail once a month. Please consider joining. You can find the link on our website or you can visit patreon.com. Thanks so much. Hi, welcome to Quiet Connection, a podcast dedicated to ending the stigma around postpartum mental health. I'm Chelsea. Today, I'm connecting with Heidi, who shares her journey through the adoption process, as well as navigating an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis for her son. She gives great insight into both subjects, while also conveying joy through the uncertainty. Let's hear from Heidi. Hello. Today I am here with Heidi. Hi, Heidi. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Um, You are a children's book writer and editor, correct? Yes. Yes. And you, um, you do a lot of collaborative work with women in the creative community. Yeah, I help um, lots of women just be more creative. That's one of my passions. And one of my, one of my side projects besides being a children's book writer and editor. (laughs) I love that. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? And I feel this is kind of how I open all my episodes. So listeners are used to it at this point. But who were you before you became a mom? Yeah, I was someone different. Um, <laughs> I was also a writer and editor, but I was, I, I mean, you hear this from all the moms that I talk to too. It's like, I was way more um, like frivolous with my time and, and maybe even like angsty about how I spent my time somewhat. It, it just after becoming a mom, it became much more like obvious how I needed to spend my time. <laughs> and, um, you know, you become more focused and your priorities are clearer. I think I was probably a more relaxed person, <laughs> a more um, easygoing, like trust what comes kind of person. And I am trying to get back to that. I never like had any intention of being what someone would call like a helicopter parent. Um, That's not my personal style or like what I would believe in. But I feel like if you saw me in the moment, you might like leap to that conclusion sometimes because my son is autistic and he needs a lot of hands-on, really close support. And um, I find myself not micromanaging, but just like in the details of life way more than I would like to be. I'm, I'm a big picture person. I'm like, a, um, things are going to be fine kind of person, but there's just so much worry and so much logistics and hands-on work that needs doing in this stage that I don't, I don't recognize myself sometimes. <laughs> That's not uncommon to hear. I think motherhood does that to all of us were changed. Yeah. And I think I I felt like pressure to just be kind of the same. Like it, it seemed like you were supposed to take a few months and be like uh, getting into your new routine, whatever that meant. But it wasn't like um, 
a sense of like you as a person are going to change, your priorities are going to change, your interests are going to change, your abilities, your capacity for work is going to change, all those things. It, it was like you were supposed to just jump back into your old life plus have a human being, like also needing all of your love and attention. And it took a while for me to be like, that is an unrealistic expectation. I, I think that was a a totally misguided impression. And I, I, I don't think I'm the only one that thought that, but um, it's something we don't really talk about is how much change it's going to bring. Yeah, you already sort of started explaining it. But what was that journey into motherhood like for you? Our son is adopted. So for me, um, we went through a really long process of, you know, you work with agencies and we had started the process in California when we lived there. And then we moved to Massachusetts partway through and we had to start the process again. Um, For us, like from beginning to end, it took many years, probably five or seven years. And it was a hard process that you really had to commit to. Like sometimes I'll hear someone say like, oh yeah, we've, we've also thought about adoption. And like, I think it's a complicated thing for everyone involved. And it's definitely not something that you can like do on a, a do as an afterthought or sort of as like a, maybe let's see, like you have to be really, really able to see the process through because it's so challenging. So by the time our son arrived, we were like really excited to be parents. And um, there was a lot of uncertainty around the timing of, you know, when that would happen and what that would look like exactly. Um, And I think for a while we were just like really excited. I was at least to just be like soaking up the baby years and like having that moment of being able to be a mom and feel like I was in the club finally after waiting so long. Was this something that you did like a foster to adopt? Was this like, I mean, what did that process look like for you? I I knew that I wanted to have a a newborn, like um, that was important to me. Um, If you're open to other ages, then I think foster to adopt is a good option. But for us, that wasn't something we were considering. And I also think knowing what I know now, like, I think it's a really good option if you're already parents and you have a lot of experience with kids or maybe you're a teacher or something like that. But for us, we didn't have a lot of experience with kids and we didn't know what we were getting into at all. (laughs) Um, And we wanted the baby experience. And yeah, we worked with a couple different agencies in Massachusetts. It's a, it's a very small um, number of birth parents. There's just not a lot of adoptions that happen in Massachusetts. So in our case, we worked with an agency in Massachusetts and then also an attorney in Florida, which is a really, it's a much more common place for adoptions to happen. Um, And for us, we flew to Florida and we met our son at the hospital where he was born and we stayed there for maybe three weeks while the paperwork was being approved and different things were happening kind of legally. And then we were able to take him home. And um, we have a semi-open adoption. Like it is technically, there is openness and some um, communication with his birth parents, which we went into it really wanting some of that because it's it's really good for the adoptees, for the for the kids as they grow up. 
But it's also, it's really hard for the adoptive parents to have that communication sometimes. Sometimes it's really healthy and sometimes it's really hard. And I think it kind of ebbs and flows how much you're able to stay in contact with them. And that's just something we're kind of like seeing how it evolves. And then our son actually has a biological sister who lives in Massachusetts as well. And part of like the adoption plan was having a connection between them. So um, we see the other family that adopted her and we get to like have that relationship in their lives as they grow up, which is really exciting. And um, I think right now they're so little, I don't know how much it matters to them particularly, but as they get older, they're going to be really glad, I think, to have someone else that's kind of in the same boat as them. <laughs> how old is your son? He's six and his sister is almost eight. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. So they are still pretty young. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. I think that'll be really, really valuable to them as they get older, just to know each other, just to know that the other one exists. Yeah. And I think um, part of what we learned through the adoption process is that for a lot of kids, you fill in the gaps. If you don't know, you just sort of make up a story. And often for kids, they're blaming themselves because that's like the story that makes sense to them, or they're kind of filling in some sort of fantasy about what their life might have been like, or just, you know, they don't know. So they're, they're making things up and we're trying to give him some sort of story that he can be telling himself as he grows up that just, it's not a surprise. It's just part of who you are. And, and everyone has these differences and different stories of where they came from and who they are. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, I love that you're so open with him about it too. So you mentioned earlier that your son is on the autism spectrum. When did you receive that diagnosis? He was four when he got diagnosed. Um, and it was during the pandemic. So mm. he, he was diagnosed via Zoom. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. But it was, you know, one of those things where um, actually it was, it, we kind of came to it through um, a GI doctor saying, we think you should consider this because he'd had a really long history of GI issues that were not falling into obvious categories or, you know, easy treatments. And there's a really high um, correlation between GI issues and autistic bodies and people. So we started that process. but. You know, as it's going on, of course, you're thinking like, "Is do I think he is autistic or not? And my husband and I both like, you know, we had such outdated understandings of what that meant. And, you know, I think my understanding was basically coming from like maybe a 1980s after school special. Mm. Like I had one picture in my mind of what that could mean. And our son did not reflect that. But um and it was also because it was during the pandemic, it was just like this whole ball of like, everything was tangled up. Is it because he's three? Is it because it's the pandemic? Is it because he's autistic? Like, there's so many reasons, who knows, like, what's contributing to what. So we didn't go into it thinking like, oh, yes, like, we need this diagnosis, or this is what's going to happen. It was still sort of like, I don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. When you did receive the diagnosis, what what sort of went through your mind? I I think for me personally, it was like a, a real stress response, partly because when we got 
like the official diagnosis, they give you a pamphlet in our case, at least like they gave us this paperwork that was like super boilerplate, super outdated. And it was like some books from maybe like 50, 20 years ago, they were really old books that were like, these are the gold standards. And then like a list of ABA places and a recommendation, like in our case, you should have ABA 20 hours a week, which I was just like, like, how in the world would we possibly do that? And also at that point I had been studying and trying to learn a little bit more about autism. And I had been you know, following a lot of autistic adults on Instagram, which I don't know why Instagram is like a good source for this kind of information, but it actually is like where a lot of progressive up-to-date thought is happening. There's a lot of really thoughtful discussion happening there. And so I was not very keen on the idea of ABA. It sounded really traumatic and and not even particularly effective. (laughs) Yeah. So it, it was just sort of like, this information dump that was not very helpful. And it felt like, well, we have so much to navigate and so much to figure out. And and it all felt very urgent too, because there's just a lot of pressure to intervene early and that's going to somehow make the difference or, you know, and you feel like if you're not doing all the things, you're not being a great parent or giving your kid what they need. (laughs) Yeah. For listeners who aren't familiar with ABA, um, it stands for Applied Behavioral Analysis. Did you end up taking that route or did you completely avoid that? We totally avoided it. And it it's something we're really happy with that choice now. Um, and I don't know where it landed officially because I think there was sort of some back and forth. But even the, um, I think it's the American Pediatric Association this year just withdrew their support for it, or at least is starting to question it like in pretty um, stark terms, whether that's like what they should be prescribing. And it's tough because like when you hear from someone in a white coat, like you need this, you think okay. (laughs) Yeah. I I should go do that. And, and we didn't have anyone say, oh, there are some options with occupational therapy. Like I I didn't even know what that word meant. And like, it was just a lot of like trying to figure it out on our own and, and what was right for us or our son and a lot of questions and, and trial and error of like, you know, calling around and, especially ABA places, I feel like I I did a round of calls and looking at websites and looking at places. And it's like, sometimes you're looking at it and you're like, well, this doesn't seem so bad. Maybe this is fine. But then you go in person and you're like, oh my gosh, this is like training dogs or like, this is, I don't want my child here. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to know. (laughs) It it totally is. And I feel like too, just coming with with a special ed background, I feel like it's just like anything else, ABA can be super helpful for some people um, and for some people on the autism spectrum. And then it can just be totally not right at all for others. It's just like everything else. I am not afraid to say um, that I am, I do not subscribe to ABA practices, but I have seen them be successful with students. But I totally, totally get 
what you're saying because you do when you look at it initially especially on paper it's like what are you guys actually doing <laughs> with my kid and I, I get like the temptation like we really want ABA is really built on this idea that like if you do the right thing if you like say the right statement if you provide the right motivation if you provide the right trigger <laughs> I say that in quotes because that word seems misplaced there. But, you know, if you do the right thing, then you get the right result. And you just need to do this, like, if A, then B thing over and over and over. And like, we would all love life to work that way. Like, yeah, absolutely. That sounds, that sounds appealing, but it's not how people work. And it's totally ignoring any of the reasons why it's not working. You know, they, they have no place for considering sensory issues or, communication differences or it, it just is like so um one size fits all and and honestly i think aba has become so pervasive and that mindset of behaviorism is so pervasive that i'm sure our son is getting some elements of it in his life yeah. I'm not, like i don't even think it would be possible to say like no one say if then statements or whatever you know <laughs> if that was how we felt but like you know, it's just in, in the water at this point. Everyone's using it to some degree. And I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. But knowing that many of the autistic adults that are like, you know, in their 20s who have gone through the system in the last 10 years are still saying like, because we also ask the doctors like, well, we're hearing it's traumatic. Why would we sign our son up for that? And they said, oh, that's how it used to be. Like, it's gotten a lot better. But there are still a lot of young autistic adults that are saying no it's it's not better and i mean and it's great to be getting that perspective too like you said social media is great for that because you're getting it straight from people's mouths mm -hmm. let's shift it a little bit what do you love about being your son's mom oh that's a great question i i love so many things i feel like he has he has so much joy and he shares it like he wants the world to see what he is seeing and what he's appreciating. And he just exudes joy. Like he does these funny little dances and like funny sounds that are like, you would have to really be trying not to understand him to be like, that's not joy. Yeah. <laughs> so wonderful. And, and like you say, like it, maybe this was something we were saying before the conversation or before the recording, but like, when you see someone make progress and it's been so hard and like nothing came easy to them, you're just so proud and so like, whoa, you did that. Like <laughs> you did not give up. And that's such a cool feeling to be a part of. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That I was saying that before we started recording. So uh, a characteristic, I guess, of some um, people on the autism spectrum could be communication issues or when you're able to sort of break down that wall and com communication can be anything. When you, when you give up that expectation of verbal communication and you start connecting and communicating through, like you said, sounds or little silly dances or just a look, just a look. It, it's so incredible and it is 
it's I, I feel and I'm not even a parent of someone on the autism spectrum, but like I feel like it's a deeper connection than than simply just verbally communicating with someone. Yeah, I, I do feel like we have a really strong connection and it's partly because we have been through so much hard stuff. We have gone through medical trauma and so many learning challenges and just so many things that in the moment felt awful, like just really, I would rather not do them. <laughs> but now I feel really proud that like we stayed close and we, we respect him and we, we know him and we can really appreciate him and help him feel good about himself. I, I really, one of my like latest things that I've been getting riled up about is like, there's so much um, like common parenting advice of like, don't tell your kids good job too much. Like it's just going to take away their internal motivation or it's going to sort of lose its meaning. And I understand that to some degree. And I've certainly like tried that approach sometimes feeling like, oh, maybe it is damaging to say good job too much. But like our son needs it so badly. He wants to know, am I doing it right? And like, he's also going to get negative feedback from everyone for the rest of his life. He's going to have a million people telling him, no, you're not doing it right over and over and over. And I just, I want him to at least hear from me, like, you're doing amazing. And I see it and, and help him have that voice in his head too. I bet you he does hear that voice in his head and it's your voice. And that's beautiful. He, he has um, a echolaic, um, like that's part of his uh, communication style is like echoing a lot of things. And so for him, it's obvious, like we are the voice in his head. Like, you know, that kind of theoretically for all kids, like what they hear is what they're saying to themselves. But for him, you know, he's narrating what he's saying or what he's thinking a lot of times when he's like doing some kind of you know, activity and he's like cheering himself on and saying the same things we say. And it's like, oh, thank goodness. It's <laughs> like, getting in there. When you initially received that diagnosis, did it change at all what your vision of the future for him looked like? Some, yeah. I think um, my husband and I were never like, Oh, he needs to go to Harvard and like become a CEO or whatever. That that wasn't really our style. And also, I think because of like when you're adopting, like it's it's obvious like you're not going to have a mini me the way it is for some parents. You know, where there's like a lot of identity tied up in like, well, I did this, so you need to do this or I couldn't do this, so you need to do this or whatever. Like we just don't have that piece of it. But in terms of like our daily life, I, I don't think we realized how much would change. Um, and, and it's always evolving. But like just going to the market, going to the market was a really big challenge for a while. We are just like starting to be able to comfortably do that, me and my son together. For a while, it had to be both both me and my husband and our son so that there were like two of us to kind of handle it. And 
I mean, it's just taken years to get comfortable with that. And like, I don't think, you know, two or three years ago, I could have, I could have like pictured, oh, we just work our days around that. You know, like we just, we just don't do that. We don't go out to those places. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We use Instacart for a while or, you know, whatever (laughs) it is, because it's like, you think, oh, like, well, you should be figuring this out. You should solve this problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should tackle this. And it's just like, no. I mean, or like our son, he doesn't really use a fork. He he's been practicing, but it's still very challenging to him to use a fork. So, ninety nine percent of what he eats is finger foods. Like when he was two or three, we were working on it. When he was four, when he's five, when he's six, we're still working on it. There's no like forcing it to be like the life that we expected it to be. And we're, you know, still making peace with that for sure. But it's, it's very different. Yeah. And I I think something that is important for people to sort of recognize, not just, not just for people who may be on the autism spectrum or um, have any sort of disability is that we don't need to be molding and shaping our kids to fit into the boxes that our society has created, we can create our own boxes. That's so hard. (laughs) You feel like it's your job to make your kid basically like fit in and conform. And I'm not like, I don't think of myself as like my biggest value is being normal by any means. (laughs) This really challenges that. Like I, I think one of the lessons from my son is very much like, it's okay to break some rules. It's okay to be yourself. It's okay to do things your own way. And I need to to learn those lessons still. Um, and and also, you just don't know what your kid is going to be like at sixteen or sixty. You know, like none of us do. And I think there's a lot of pressure, like to somehow when you're six years old prove that you're going to be a good adult, which doesn't make any sense. But it's like, there's no room for like, just messy, (laughs) figuring it out, can't do it. (laughs) Like, that stage, there's there's not a lot of margin for right now. No. And I don't mean to like overgeneralize. And I don't mean I'm not trying to, to diminish your experiences at all. I just kind of want to make it like a parent, like we're, I feel like as parents, we're, we all feel like that. And you definitely feel it, I think a little bit heavier and, and parents of, of kids who have any sort of, um, neurodiversity or disability feel it a little heavier, but as parents, we all feel that need to like make our kids fit in because, because they're like a little reflection of us. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it's so not fair. We're denying them of of being themselves. Yeah. And and honestly, like school isn't, we go to a great school. I love our school team. We have a lot of resources at our school. But the school structure that is like our national approach to school, it is not kid friendly. It's not human friendly. It does not build on their strengths. It's, you know, meant for them to go into this very small box and stay there and like not have any questions about it. So like, that's just a rough, rough way to spend your days. (laughs) 
Absolutely. I mean, okay. So, like, girl, I could go on a whole other podcast <laughs> for hours on this. I, I am. I'm. I'm current. I'm still licensed as a special educator, but I have not worked in the school system for about uh, a year and a half now. Um, and I, yeah. I could get up on my soapbox and go to town about how the way that the school systems in our country are completely doing a disservice to our kids. All of our kids. Yeah. All of our kids. So many of the things that apply to neurodivergent kids or gifted kids or just, you know, English uh, as a second language learners, like it applies to all the kids. Some of the kids kind of smile and nod and like get through it, but they would benefit from all the same accommodations that the other kids really, really need. <laughs> Absolutely. On that same sort of track, you had mentioned when we were chatting before, his, your son's school experience has sort of shifted and changed a little bit over the years. Yeah. So he's, he was in kindergarten last year and he started full time in our district. It's like, you can go three hours a day or six hours a day. And he started going six hours a day. And about like two or three months into school, they said, we think he should go three hours a day. And that was like a real, a real hit (laughs) because not only did that affect my work and like what I was doing during those six hours, it was really hands-on during the other hours that he was at home. So I wasn't just not working. I was caregiving at a really intense pace, you know, and that was, it was just exhausting. And this year he is in kindergarten again, but going six hours a day. And we are hoping that it's working. We don't, we don't have a great sense of how it's going um, other than kind of what we observe at home, but our sense is that it's probably going okay, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't look traumatized. He doesn't look like embattled. He looks like he kind of likes school sometimes, (laughs) not all the time, but he's not (laughs) resisting it with the full force of what we've seen him, you know, do for other things. And he has an aide full-time, um, like one-on-one aide, which I think really makes a difference for him. And he's he's splitting his time. I think more than half of his time right now is in the general ed classroom. And he has a lot of pullouts and a lot of um, time with the special ed teacher that like kind of tailors things for him. And really like his our understanding is he's really repeating kindergarten for the social emotional side of things. And, and we knew going in last year, he was not ready for kindergarten. He, he's just slower to develop. And that's, I think part of it being a developmental delay. It's, it's hard to, to articulate to someone who doesn't know him or hasn't seen him progress and grow, but like, he keeps growing. He just does it at his own pace and in his own yeah. very roundabout way. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so we don't know what next year will look like or the year after or, you know, what what he will need at each stage. But we do really love the school. They've been very positive and accommodating and 
they seem like they have way more resources than we came from another district before we had started kindergarten. We had a really rough experience there just like with the evaluation process and, and basically feeling like they were writing us off, like, you know, after a 10 minute observation. So <laughs> we're feeling good, like we're in the right place, but it's, it is very stressful and there's a lot of unknowns and just, and it's just this whole other system to navigate. Just like, you know, you're navigating the medical system and trying to get therapies and appointments and the right doctors, you're navigating the IEP system and, you know, it, you've never done it before. <laughs> There's just so many unknowns. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not an easy, it's not an easy process, especially when, when they're this young too, and you're brand new to the whole process. It's confusing. It's confusing and it feels high stakes, even though like I I like to believe there's more than one way to do things. You know, we don't have to get it perfect, but it feels like you know, this is your person and you're trying to get them in the right place with the right resource because you believe in them and you want them to just be comfortable. You don't want him to be like drowning every day. <laughs> Of course. What are what are some things that he loves? Mm. He has always loved music. And one of his favorite toys is this Yodo player. I don't know if people, I feel like everyone would gush about Yodo if they know about it. <laughs> I've never heard of it. It's a small little device. It has these little cards you put in and out and it has a radio component. But it's basically like a screen-free audio device. And you can listen to a million stories. They have podcasts. They have like their own little stuff. And he gets like a ton of his little scripts from it. And he just gets like so much joy. You can re-listen like over and over to little bits of it, which is so perfect for him. And he can choose what he wants to listen to and stuff. That's, that's always been one of his favorites. Does he sing or does he like to play any instruments? Yes. I mean, he's, he's actually like naturally brilliant in it. He, he has like a perfect ear. He sings beautifully. He can like hum anything like the garage door opening sound or like the microphone. Oh, wow. And he, when he was younger, like maybe two years old, we used to have these bells that you just like hit the top of. And he would like run around the room listening to music and then stop and hit the exact right bell right on time and then keep running around. Like he's just he can do things I could never do in music. <laughs> and eventually I hope like we can really, you know, give him some structure to that maybe. But for now, it's just something that really brings him joy. <laughs> That's so cool. So it sounds like he has a lot of sensory needs, but I want to talk about your sensory needs and how you um, balance sort of his needs with your own needs are or are you even able to do that I don't know it I mean I I have I have the goal to do that for sure <laughs> and like I think part of it is starting with the idea that it is possible for people to get their needs met even when they're contradictory and you just need to bring some sort of creative approach to it but in the moment, a lot of times it does not feel possible. And it feels like a lot of times for me personally, it feels like the only thing that would work is to take a break. And there is just no way to take a break right then. 
but I do feel like I I'm able to talk more with him about what I need, like just in tiny moments, but like saying like, I'm too tired to talk or I'm too tired for questions. Um, he's in a real like question bonanza right now. It's like <laughs> so draining sometimes. Um <laughs> And like kind of saying, I need to take a break. Like I, you might not need to, but I do. Um, trying to like communicate that and trust that hopefully I'm modeling that for him to some degree so that someday he's going to say, I, I need to take a break and walk himself over to his bed and chill out. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, on a practical level, I think for me, sound is really very like overstimulating so i wear my little loops uh earplugs quite a bit do those work yeah they are great like i can hear him but i don't hear all the stuff like like if he's playing a game it's not as annoying but i can still hear him if he wants to talk to me or something i i really like them and like i you know i don't turn on my podcast if i'm driving for 15 minutes anymore like old heidi would have been like oh Let's listen to something interesting. And now I'm like, I just need quiet. I wish I had space for that podcast right now, but I just don't. So I try to give myself those really quiet moments as much as I can, even though they're not they're not enough. <laughs> Do you have a support system like family or anybody nearby that's able to maybe give you some of those breaks? We live with my mom, but she is in her 70s. Um, she's really not able to do too much she she is a really big financial support for us and she helps us just with her experience you know but she's not able to do a lot of hands-on support we had a nanny for some hours this summer not full-time but just like for some some coverage this summer but it really it doesn't feel like enough um and we don't have anyone that's like we have like a couple neighbors or like a friend that we can call if, you know, something really urgent happens, but we don't have like someone where it's like, oh, let's just trade or <laughs> like something more casual. like that. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard. It, it's hard to, it's hard to afford childcare, but also for, for our son, like we don't want someone that's just like a random person off of care.com like you know he would need to have some kind of relationship with them we need them to have some understanding of what he's saying and how he you know needs his routine to go and that kind of thing it's way more complicated than just being like hey you're 16 like can you just sit here for three hours (laughs) put on a movie order some pizza (laughs) yeah maybe one day we'll get to that stage but we're not there right now (laughs) So what I feel, I feel like I'm digging and digging, but what do you do? What, what do you find brings you peace? What fills your cup? Um, I think work to some extent, like my, my personal projects, not necessarily client work, which I appreciate, but really having something that feels like it's all mine feels more important than ever at this stage. Um, if I'm working like on, on my own picture book or I'm writing a poem, even like, it just feels like that's a place I can go in my head. And it feels like I am the one that gets to decide 
what it looks like, what it sounds like, you know, I get to make it for me. And that feels really good. And, and also I think for me, I need to leave the house sometimes, like whether it's a a walk or sometimes like if it's a weekend, I'll just be like, we're going to drive somewhere (laughs) because like, I just need to feel like I'm not stuck at this one place especially because I work at home like it it can be like I have not talked to a non-work non-family member person in a long time (laughs) (laughs) or seen something that wasn't my house or the car or a piece of paper for a long time I really want to read what you create because like like hearing you talk about it you sound so passionate about oh, it. Thank you. I I've worked on children's books a long time and I'm just starting to work on some adult projects. I have a book out on submission that's about making space for creativity and motherhood and also just published an essay um Literary Mamas a literary journal about motherhood and it's about our son and his communication style and just how unique it is to communicate and connect with him. Oh, I would love to read that too. Oh my goodness. What do you think you might say um, to a parent who is receiving a challenging diagnosis or or any sort of diagnosis, medical or developmental, um, for their child for the first time? Mm. I wish someone had told me it is going to get easier. Like, there's going to be challenges probably for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's not like you're going to get to an end point, but it will get easier. And it, it doesn't have to change how much you love them. It doesn't have to change how much of a family you are. I, I feel like we're a really close family and we we see our son for who he is, but and like, I mean, I, I feel like part of my job as his mom is to like witness how hard some things are for him, you know, and to be there with him when it's just, it feels like there's no way forward for him. But I think knowing more like about who he is and what he needs and what works and what gives him some comfort. I, I mean, even two years ago, like we couldn't like talk with him about what he loved. We we were sort of observing him and had a sense of what he might be interested in. We obviously had a few favorite toys, but even that wasn't like clear. It was a lot of guesswork. And having just more tools, more information, more understanding and more experience under your belt of like, okay, we got through that last thing. I don't know how we're going to get through this thing, but we are going to get through it. <laughs> it it does build your confidence and you you do feel like it's your life. It it doesn't feel like it at first and it feels really overwhelming, but it it becomes your life and you do it. <laughs> I don't know if that is comforting yeah. or helpful though. <laughs> <laughs> it's real. Yeah. It's real, which is all I can ask for. How how has this sort of the journey through adoption, the journey through um, finding out that your son was on the autism spectrum, how has that sort of affected or or has it affected your relationship with your partner? Mm. Well, I mean, one interesting piece that probably I should mention is that it really made it clear to my husband that he is autistic. And that happens a lot for biological families, but in our case, was sort of a 
a coincidence, but <laughs> kind of out of left field. <laughs> sort of, except I mean, as you you learn about it, you're like, oh, this is you. Like there, he is not like even a questionable <laughs> case. <laughs> like it's it's obvious. <laughs> um, so that has changed, and having that understanding like has been really, it's been helpful for us as a couple. But I think it's helpful for him as a father to see like. He is six. This is the six-year-old version of who he is. I am 48. I was not fully formed. I was not, I was a lot rougher at that age, you know, <laughs> like we are going to get to 48 and it's going to look different. And, and having that perspective is really helpful. But it's also, it's very, very challenging to not have any time together. That's like downtime or not talking about the IEP meeting, you know, like yeah. just having like a date where we're not exhausted. I mean, the last time we went out, we both were like, we would have liked a nap instead, but we <laughs> we went out. <laughs> They're getting, do a do a nap, get a get a get a hotel, and literally just sleep. <laughs> we we've declared a lot of things dates, but not that yet. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound too bad to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that your husband can relate to your son in a different way, knowing what he knows now about himself and your son? Some, yeah. I And sometimes he'll translate a little bit for me. Like, there's so much variety in how people behave and what they struggle with when they're autistic. Like, it, you know. You oh, know, yeah. They always say, you know, one autistic person, you know, one autistic person. So they're very different. But one thing I think they share and that a lot of autistic people share is like a, a really focused mind when you're you're interested in something, you're very focused on it. They also have like a they share like a kind of binary approach. Sometimes I especially see in my son, I, I feel like he has like a flow chart going in his mind where he's thinking, if you do this, then what happens if I do this? Uh, if it's with a toy, he's like, well, if I move it to the left, what happens if I move it to the right? What happens? What if I turn it upside down and move it to the left? What happens then? What if I turn it upside down and move it to the right? What happens then? Like for words, for everything he's thinking in this way. And I think my husband, to some degree, he's he does a lot of computer programming and he always is saying, oh, he's going to be a great programmer because he gets that real like clear flow of information and the way things relate and all of that that's so cool though that I mean you're absolutely right you meet one autistic person you've met one autistic person but I think that it's kind of a gift that they can they can sort of relate to each other on that on some level on some level at least and I think it helps me talk to our son like we, we can both say oh this is how daddy Things too, you know, and it gives it a little more open, like it's okay. It normalizes things a little bit. Does your son know that he is on the autism spectrum? Yeah. I'm I think it's like a conversation you have to have many, many times, many different ways, you know. Um, a lot of times I might bring it up like if we're going to OT at the clinic or something and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of kids here that are autistic, just like you, you know, that kind of thing. Like I, I try to weave it in and, and sometimes we'll say like, you know, it can be really hard to be autistic or it can be really fun to be autistic. And like, you know, we read some books about it and talk about it a little bit. But uh, 
at least for right now, our son is very, um, he really withdraws if he senses a topic is heavy or like kind of charged in some way. So we do it in very small, <laughs> small moments. And it sounds totally appropriate. Um, and I feel I, I also, I want to make it clear. I feel like I'm focusing so much on your son and it's not intentional, but I'm doing it. Well, no, it kind of is intentional because I know that we have listeners who are in the very beginning stages of this process. Like they have, they have toddlers who, who have been diagnosed and they feel very alone and confused, just like you were explaining, like you're getting a bunch of outdated information and you're getting like IEPs, all these acronyms thrown at you. So I guess a, lo- a lot of the questions are that I'm asking are, I'm super curious about your son because he sounds like an amazing kid, but also to sort of normalize those conversations and normalize those topics because, because they're not alone. You're not alone and they're not alone. Yeah, I I think that first year, it feels like so much is happening and so much is changing and you're learning so much. You're trying to digest so much. And like with all parenting, I mean, I think all parents benefit from thinking long term instead of like, what did today look like? Or what did this tantrum look like? Or, you know, this specific moment, you got to zoom out and trust Things keep growing, things keep changing, and trust yourself to navigate that. Even though it feels like you have no idea what you're doing, you know your kid really well. And you know what your family needs. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of power in having some vision for where you want to go. It can be really painful to feel like you're not headed in that direction or you're not meeting that goal, but having a sense of what you think life might look like as you absorb this information and as you make accommodations and you you make this part of your life and your family, like it, it can help you keep going and it really is you know, they say it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's like a marathon plus a marathon plus a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> try not to think about what mile you're on. Try not to worry how fast you're going. Just like give yourself a break because you are in the very beginning stage of it. And there's no way you can possibly know what's going to happen. Um, I want to know more about you and the work that you do, because every time it kind of comes up in our conversation, you light up. And I just I want to hear about that, about the work that you're doing with women and in your writing and and just this whole creative process that you're facilitating. Oh, that's that's so good to hear. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I feel like it's like this very uh, it's not private because I am sharing it all the time, but it feels like it's my thing, you know, so it's um, it does feel different to me. And. I started a Substack uh, this year that is interviewing a hundred creative mothers about their experience. That's like my focus for it right now. It might evolve, but it's been really cool to connect with other women like that. I just wouldn't know otherwise. And that I am like, Whoa, I love your art. Or this is like, I just want to know what you're doing and how you're making it work. But also to see the patterns over and over of, women who are saying like having this 
creative practice, even if I had to put it on hold, even if it looks different now, even if I only get to do it once a year or once a month or whatever, it's really important to me. And it is making me feel like a whole person. And I, I really feel like the world needs more art in general, but it needs more art from mothers because mothers witness so much. They, they are like advanced in their wisdom. They have so much to share and art is one of the ways that we do that. And I, I want to absorb their art. I want that out in the world. And I just, I think the world would be a better place if women could have a bigger voice and share their wisdom and make it part of the conversation. I love that. Women empowering women. All about that. Yeah. Everyone says too, like their creative practice changed. And some some women are like, I didn't feel creative before. I I didn't have any interest in this. But there's something about becoming a mom that it changes what you're interested in. It changes how you kind of spend time with yourself, how you want to express yourself. Um, It just changes so much about what you want to make, how you want to spend your days. And sometimes that's making art. (laughs) And art, I would assume it's all different types of media too. Like, Yeah. I have like a a floral designer. She has like these gorgeous um, floral arrangements. She did an interview. We have someone that just like reconnected to her dance background. Um, I, I really want there to be like a diversity of voices and mediums and, and, look at it kind of across all these different experiences. Um, Is this something that is accessible now or is it an ongoing project? Yeah, yeah. I think it's HeidiFeeler.substack.com. But if you Google Mothers Who Make um, Substack, that's you'll be able to find it. And it's like, I've been saying it's almost like a museum online because it's like all, it's a collection of all these profiles and interviews and seeing everyone's work all together is really cool. I would encourage our listeners to check it out. I'm going to check it out for sure. So what I love about this conversation that we've had and that this connection that we've made is that I have learned, I've learned so much about your son, but I've also witnessed your joy through this process where I feel like a lot of, a lot of people sort of make the assumption that when you're going through something like an autism diagnosis or any sort of anything with your kids that's just sort of off the track of what you had planned, that that it sort of derails everything. And it can be, I mean, it can be awful. It could be depressing. But you have exuded so much joy through this whole conversation. And and I just love hear I love hearing you talk about your son. I love hearing you talk about your your work that you're doing. But I also acknowledge that that it's a challenge. And like you said, it's a marathon and not to count the miles because you're not going to like what you hear. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um, like I ask all of my guests, if you could go back in time and not give yourself any sort of indication as to where your life was headed or or what to expect, but you could sort of arm yourself with something to prepare you for it. What would you arm yourself with? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I mean, part of what I was thinking when you were saying, like, I hear your joy, but also I know there's challenges, is that so much of the challenge comes from feeling like you are alone and you have to figure this out by yourself. And there's just not enough support. There's not enough community support. There's not enough education around these topics. It feels like you are like, 
climbing uphill, but everyone's like shouting at you to like chill out and like get in the ocean. <laughs> like it just feels like you're on a different planet than what everyone else is talking about. And I think if I could go back, I mean, like on a practical level, I would love to give myself some actual support, some like childcare, some, <laughs> some, some days off. But if I was putting something into me, I think it would be tuning out those voices, like having the confidence and the self-possession to just say, this is where I'm at. This is where I see us going. This is what I believe in. And just cast off everything else. I, I want to do that all the time in every area of my life, but it feels really important in parenting. I think that's really powerful. And I, and I agree with you completely. I, I think that's a challenge. It's a challenge for, for me, for sure. I can't shut those voices off. So yeah, that would be a wonderful thing to, to sort of arm yourself with. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. I think they're going to benefit a lot of our listeners um, from the perspective of adoption and from the perspective of having a child who is neurodiverse um, and just, you know, finding joy and glimmer in the process. So thank you for trusting me with your story. Thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed connecting with Heidi and learning more about her parenting journey, as well as the work that she's doing creatively with mothers. I want to thank her again for sharing her story with me. If you'd like to follow along with us on Quiet Connection, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads at Quiet Connection or at Quiet Connection Podcast. You can support our community by writing a review on your favorite podcast platform and sharing our episodes on social media. You could also consider becoming a Patreon member and gain access to things like bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and goodies in the mail once a month. If you'd like to share your personal journey, you can reach us through our website, quietconnectionpodcast.com, or by email at quietconnectionppmh at gmail.com. Join us next time when another story is told and you realize you are not alone. I see you.